This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, don't you think dreams and the internet are similar? everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review critique show that's putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gap, and I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi. And this week we watched one of my all-time favorite movies flat out, in addition to being an incredibly good sci-fi movie with a lot of deep things to explore and think about that will leave you very confused by the end. Oh, uh, you're confused? I was... I was in a whole other world. I mean, it's one of those nice ones where parts, it seems very confusing, but it's also very straightforward and easy to understand. And the more times you watch it, the more things get more confusing, but also make a different amount of sense. It it evolves. It twists around itself. uh, New meanings uh, appear when others fade. This week we watched the 2006 anime film Paprika. Mm Mm-hmm based on a novel by the same name. I have to agree. It's also kind of a fantastic movie, and this is the first time I saw the entirety of it uh, from end to end. Uh, so, so much I had to watch a couple times. <laughs> yeah, I was watching it a few times. There's just sections. Like, I was watching the opening over and over again just because it's so good. Yes. <laughs> well, we'll get to that in a moment, though. It was co-written and directed by Satoshi Kon who is very well known for making amazing animated films. Unfortunately, he has only made four before he died in 2010. Indeed. Uh, he was working on another uh, movie uh, when he started. his health started failing, but it was never finished and it's unlikely to be. So. It's unfortunate. It sounds amazing. There are a few uh, short films hanging around that he also directed and animated, but he only made like four major films. Uh, he also worked on something called Paranoia Agent, which is one of my favorite animes of all time. Yes, it's one that I need to see that they apparently stopped publishing the DVDs of. It's now out of print, so... That's annoying. <laughs> gonna have to try to find that. His uh, most well-known film is probably Perfect Blue. Which is another one I've not seen all the way through. I've seen just parts of it, so... Also very confusing if you only see parts of it. Yes. <laughs> Which interestingly deals with very similar themes. We'll get into the, like the synopsis and stuff in a little bit, but a lot of his films deal with reality and our perceptions of reality and how we know what is or isn't reality and how they all kind of mix together into a big blobby mess. Gets all tangled up. He's had some interesting interviews that I've I've heard people quote of um he has these these things of we we experience both reality and our unconsciousness and fantasies both as individuals and as a society all at the same time. This is uh, starting to sound a little Jungian there. Yeah, a little bit. There's a lot of very Freudian and Jungian influences in this movie, particularly because there's a lot of dream stuff. Yes, it's all in your head, man, or is it? So I'm going to get into the cast list. Uh, Both of us watched the subbed version, so we're going to be using the Japanese voice cast. I understand that there is an American dubbed version, which I have the cast list for somewhere, but we did not watch that one. Indeed. Also, uh, as anyone who listens to this show knows, I cannot even pronounce English names. 
and I have basically zero experience trying to read anything in Japanese. I'm going to do my best because it's just, you know, names I'm not familiar with. So I'm going to try really hard to pronounce them as best I can, but I know I'm going to make mistakes. Right, let's go. Let's, let's roll. Oh, the main voice cast. Megumi Haishibira as Dr. Asoko Chiba. Or Chiba Asoko. Or Chiba Asoko. Yeah, I'm, it's impossible for me to know which direction these names are supposed to go because they keep switching them in every single thing that I look at. Uh, Megumi Ebibashara. Uh, um, I'm going to just kind of be terrible at the pronunciation, mm-hmm. the more worse than you are. Uh, is, uh, is a, you know, a voice acted in a whole lot of things, including uh, FLCL, uh, Neo Genesis Evangelion, uh, uh, some Final Fantasy stuff. Uh, yeah, all sorts of things here. As far as I can tell, most of the voice cast in this movie has just been in all of all the, the good anime. animation. <laughs> it, it would be perhaps too long to go through all of their uh, their 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 their. their uh, the credits there so yeah and some of this is already going to take a while so we're going to be a little lighter on the other credits than normal <laughs> akio atsuko plays detective toshimi kanakoa or konokoa it was very difficult for me to hear how they pronounced the names in this movie taru furuya plays dr kasaku tokita he's the uh, main one of the main scientists there's two main scientists Two main boss people, two semi-villains, and a detective. Yep. Toru Imori plays the chairman, whose name is Inui Sejoru, but they never say his name in the entire movie. Yeah, they just call him the chairman. We're going to call him the chairman. Yeah, and it's fitting because he's, you know, has a wheelchair. Yeah, I was wondering if that was intentional. But then I was thinking that those those two words probably aren't as similar in Japanese as they are in English. True. But we don't know. <laughs> Daisuke Sakaguchi as Kai Himaro. And finally, Kochiya Yamadira as Morio Asane. Yes. <laughs> uh. It's him, Morio. I just read these. Yeah, Morio <laughs> Asane. <laughs> I just read through these. I got nervous about the pronunciation as soon as I had to record it. So, <laughs> sorry, it's worse than usual. We'll, we'll, we'll forgive you. There's also uh, don't forget uh, Shima's voice actor there. Do I not read Shima's voice actor? Katsunsuke Hori. She is a voice of Shima Tora Toro. Ah, yes. Thank you. I did skip Shima. Oh, yeah, no worries. I like Shima Tora Toro. He's that guy in every anime that is a very very tiny old scientist so it's sort of a an archetype of some sort you could even imagine hmm there's a lot of archetypes in this movie and a lot of them that i don't necessarily know since i don't know a lot of uh, japanese culture Indeed. so hopefully we're gonna muddle through here <laughs> we'll do our best folks so let's let's get rolling into it we open on a circus there's clowns and acrobats performing as detective konokoa stalks through the crowd Looking for someone, the ringmaster suddenly sets a spotlight on him and transports him into a cage in the center ring, where the crowd, who is now all him, rushes him as he falls through the floor that is now the top of the tent. He's saved from falling by a red-haired woman on the trapeze, but then he's suddenly Tarzan, carrying her through a jungle. And then he gets knocked off a vine and is a spy being choked on a train car. Then he's a photographer 
at a dance where someone's getting hit over the head with a guitar. <laughs> then he sees a man whose face is obscured and he follows him around the corner to a crime scene. The man running down a hallway and through a door on the opposite end. When he tries to give chase, the hallway falls away and he falls into a void to wake up in a hotel with the woman who saved him staring at him. Well, I guess it was all a dream then. Yeah, it's a very fast-paced but somewhat confusing opening. It's great. Yes. <laughs> the woman explains that she was using a device called the DC Mini to enter his dreams, that it's a new experimental form of therapy. Hmm. Anaka is suffering from anxiety stemming from a homicide he's investigating, and the crime scene was the hallway that he saw in his dream. He's not feeling so well, so he decided to get some help, which is good for him. She goes to leave, and when he asks when he can see the woman again, she gives him her card, which has a website on one side, and on the other side, her name, Paprika. Cue the intro sequence. This is like her driving through the city, which then... It's just the best animated intro ever. She like sees a rocket ship drawn on the side of a truck and then is suddenly flying it and then goes into a billboard and then hops through an office building and freezes time and basically does whatever she wants to. Yeah, it's like, oh, there's some guys creeping on me. Well, I'm going to go away from them by hopping onto someone's shirt. Yeah, it's just an amazingly well done sequence that you can't describe. But there's that. Yes. The music <laughs> is also incredible. It's great. Uh, I didn't mention the score was composed by susumi kirasawa um who did like just an incredible musical score for this and is well worth looking up on your own i might check it out the sun begins to rise and papika goes back to the freeway driving away as we wipe cut to her possibly being a another skinny slightly older than paprika woman with black hair and a very business-like bun. Yeah, so, you know, a little older, you know, for bread to black, and uh, much more, I guess... Seriously? <laughs> serious, yeah. Uh, you know, Paprika is very sort of a free spirit sort of, you know, thing going on here, but uh, this, this lady is like, well, I'm just driving to work. Well, this is Dr. Chiba Soko. She arrives at work to see her co-worker, Dr. Tokita, who is a very fat man stuck in an elevator. He has a problem, it seems. Yeah, he does, and they mention it later. Uh, it's interesting, there's not, like, it looks like he's going to be the butt of a lot of jokes, but there's some, like, slight cultural shaming around him, but it's from characters you're not supposed to like, so. Mm -hmm. She exasperatedly pulls him out of the elevator, which may or may not be the first time she's had to do this, and... He says that he was on his way to tell her about how the DC Mini has been stolen, and it's probably an inside job since the DC Mini was incomplete. It doesn't have any access restrictions built into it, so anyone who has one can access their therapy machines at any time from anywhere. That seems like a horrible thing, uh, just a, an always-on network connection. Yeah, well, he was going to fix it later. Yeah, well, there's a prototype, so, you know, th things have to go in uh, stages here. They and their colleague Shima Toratoro, the three scientists who have, you know, built this thing, have to report to their boss, who is the, call just called the chairman. He's a bald man in a wheelchair in a corporate He's office. Professor X. Basically, yeah. The chairman is none too happy about the DC Mini Project to begin with, much less now that it's been stolen. He comments that it's blasphemous to trespass on other people's dreams and that they should not be in there to control people's minds. 
Shiva corrects him that they are not controlling, but they're there to help people. But he's still not happy about it and comments on the rumors of this paprika woman who has been conducting unauthorized therapy treatments. So some sort of, uh, you, know, you know, suspicion of a nefarious plot this Cherubin has. In the middle of this, Tora Tora begins yelling about a nonsensical parade with confetti and dancing refrigerators and shiny shrine gates. And then he sprints down the hallway, jumping out of an upper story window. Whoops. Um, He doesn't usually do that. We cut to the parade he described with inanimate objects marching through a desert and he himself upon a throne of dolls. Uh, This is the dream that he's having while he's unconscious after the jump. His dream apparently was implanted into his waking mind by whoever has the DC Mini now. Oh no, this is some straight-up mind manipulation here. We are now introduced to their other colleague, Morio Osane. He's a pretty boy doctor. (laughs) He's your conventionally handsome uh, anime guy. Yeah. He works along with them, but seems to have little to no idea what's actually happening. As conventional, uh, you know, attractive anime guy tends to be. One of the dolls that they're watching on the dream begins to recite a weird poem about the dark night and the waking world and the flowers that bloom under the moon and morphs into a man who they all recognize as Kai Himaro, who is Tokita's assistant. Wait a moment. Inside job, stolen tech. Maybe this is our industrial saboteur. Possibly. The three of them decide to go to Himura's apartment, and it's filled with dolls and electronics and toy robots with Tokita's face written on them. So, to quote Jack Black in uh, a movie, you know, The House the Clock in Its Walls, so creepy. Now, this is actually, like, it's very, very creepy. I think it's supposed to be read as creepy, but there's also a long tradition of uh, people with technical skills in japan making complicated animatronic dolls it's even something that the head of nintendo does as a hobby i was unaware of this i forget what the term is but it's a it's a form of uh clockwork doll making that you like there's there's very very complicated ones that like fire bows and arrows and things neat (laughs) and they mention at one point that himuro is known for making his dolls like, he, he makes them all the time. It's like a hobby. It's something that's personally important to him. Chiba explores the apartment alone, finding a ladder hidden in a closet, when a ghostly image of Paprika warns her that it's dangerous, but Chiba's very dismissive of her. Maybe they're not seeing eye to eye. She goes down the ladder into a graffitied hallway that leads into an amusement park. She sees one of the dolls sitting on top of some steps, and as she vaults over the railing, the theme park disappears, and she's jumping over the balcony of the apartment several stories in the air. Uh-oh. Chiba, no! Osane catches her before she falls to her death. <laughs> oh, that's a convenient thing he is there. Thank you, Asane. Later, they are all at a restaurant while our... Tokita is eating massive amounts of food and explaining that the DC Mini uses an energy frequency that the body might actually adapt to. So Chiba, having used the device more than anyone else, may have actually adapted to the point that she can connect to dreams without having to wear the DC Mini or being asleep. So you're basically giving people psychic powers. Kinda, yeah. Wait, this is starting to turn into X-Men. Chiba gets called into the office and Paprika goes into Toratora's dreams... She basically sinks into him and inflates him until he pops, which wakes him up because now he's with Chiba in the hospital. 
I, I guess all I needed to do was, um, actually, I'm going to avoid that uh, joke about blowing things. Um, <laughs> this is one of the, I mean, I think the movie might have been making that joke, but yes, <laughs> this is one of the other times that we just see Paprika randomly fix a dream. She does that. That night, Detective Kanakoa decides to log on to the website that Paprika gave him. It's a bar, and he goes inside and sits down. Like, actually sitting down in the bar, like he is actually there now. There he finds Paprika, and they share a drink and talk about dreams and how similarly the internet is very much like a dream. You like that intro I did for this episode, hmm. Here he also reveals his apparent hatred of movies. He doesn't like movies! You have to leave here. You're in a movie, man. Ah, which something to comment on for people who were like would know these things. I didn't describe it well enough, but his entire dream sequence earlier was all references to classic films. Indeed. Was, yeah, uh, when, you're, when, you're, when you're swinging through the trees like Tarzan, that's probably Tarzan you got going on there. Yeah, there's also uh, From Russia with Love and The Greatest Show and another one I can't remember. Uh, Roman Holiday. Okay. Thank you, Amazon Fun Facts. <laughs> the night bar also has two bartenders one of which is voiced by the director and the other one is voiced by the novel's author now, now one of them does have an unfortunate mustache but we're going to ignore that for now back in the therapy office there are another two doctors who are marching down the hallway apparently part of the same parade that we saw earlier hmm, oh no we've got some sort of you know, a mimetic virus going on here, apparently. Yes, the spread of victims causes the chairman to shut down the DC Mini project because he hated it anyway. Hmm, science is evil, and I don't like you guys or your face either. Yeah, you shouldn't be using science for this. It has no soul. Ah. As Tokita cleans up, Chiba sees the back of his shirt that has a robot character that she saw at the amusement park. Hmm, yes. They go to the abandoned amusement park, which Takita says he knew from his childhood, and he describes to Himuro several times. Showing up in those dream worlds, perhaps there's a connection there. Oh, they see the same doll on the stairs, even. The kimono doll. Chiba goes to investigate, and Paprika warns her about a danger just before Himuro falls through the Ferris wheel line roof and almost smashes her. Oh, uh, thank you, Paprika. Uh, you... How are you able to say uh, detect that? And the DC Mini is fused with Himuro's head. That seems like a bad thing. Yeah, I guess they sort of mention it later, but I guess if you wear the thing for too long, it's going to do that. And he should have known that. Yeah, you don't let it, like, sink into your skull guy. Kanaka is now brought into the circle as he has to investigate these DC Mini attacks because the two people from the parade earlier have apparently walked into traffic. There's a little bit of a brief scene with them sort of being carted off by, you know, ambulances, and they're still in full parade, I guess, um, delusion mode? Yeah, they're always yelling about walking refrigerators and cats and random things. Yes. So, Hanakwa goes to interview Takita and Chiba, who he seems to recognize, though not directly. It's like, you look very familiar. Hmm. Tokita is very defensive of his inventions at first, but he opens up a lot as Kanaka seems to understand the purpose of his invention, which he says is to get closer to people and share your friend's dreams and have a more intimate connection. Yeah, it's like, oh, you, you are someone who is understanding of what we're, what we're doing here. You're not just science bad. So hooray, I'm going to tell, tell you things about things. Asane confronts Chiba later about her support of Tokita, 
because he believes that it's his immaturity and inability to understand what's going on even in a crisis situation that is causing a lot of these problems and that he's not really taking responsibility for his own invention. Could it be that he's being reckless? It does even lead to to Chiba confronting him and smacking the DC Mini he's working on out of his hands in the lab and them having a bit of a fight about this. Onoko has a panic attack on his way back home from their interview. They call Chiba in to help and she morphs fully into paprika as she runs down a hallway so so what is going on here it's not entirely clear not yet no now back in kanako's dreams this time people are using camera and movie terms before he's trapped uh, instead of falling and going through the same sequence he winds up in an elevator with paprika who takes him through his previous dream as floors of a building so, you know, sort of slow down the process and we'll examine each bit and sort of explain what's going on. This is like one of my favorite dream sequence scenes because she says floor 17 where the murder was. And he goes, no, not there. And then all of a sudden, every single number on the elevator is floor 17. I guess there's no uh, hiding from this eventuality. He sees the murder again, but this time he gets to see the other perspective and the murderer is him. So is the victim. Wait, wait a moment. This is getting a little confusing. Yes, he shot himself in a hallway. So why did he shoot himself? Meanwhile, Tokita has repaired some of the DC minis with the new functions to keep people out and keep them safe as he sees it. And he decides that with his newly improved versions, he's going to go into Himuro's coma dreams where he hopes he's able to save him, but instead he winds up as part of the parade as a toy robot. Oh no, he's trapped as well. It's a very powerful dream. Paprika talks movies with Kanaka in a theater where they were watching his dreams just now. Because, you know, they just transported to a theater like you do in dreams. Yeah, you do that sometimes. They're getting somewhere and understanding why he keeps having this dream. But then the parade starts to pour in through the back wall. This isn't part of my dream, is it? Or is my head really this messed up? Yeah, I do like that. He's like, this is all in my head? Oh, no. It's like, um, no, this is something else. Mm -hmm. um, give me a moment. <laughs> the dreams are starting to merge. She tells Kanaka to wake up, and Shiba heads back to the lab. She and Toratoro agree that the only option is for her to go into Himuro's dreams as Paprika, but this time she's going to have Toratoro's backup because he can communicate with her through the dream machinery from the waking world. It's kind of a you know, cool way how he sort of manifests in there. <laughs> also, she turns into monkey, like flying on his cloud, which is really fun. It's one I the recognized. Monkey King. No, that's uh, Chinese. Yeah, from a journey into the West. Yeah. But I guess it's recognizable enough imagery. It's uh, well, one of the inspirations for uh, you know uh, that, that whole Dragon Ball uh, Goku fellow as well. Verbeka finds the parade, but there's no one there. She is led towards a breach in the dream reality, which leads into another creepy hallway. She follows it, turning into a small fairy so she can fly around, and finds the empty shell of Himuro's body. He seems to have been hollowed out. This is, um, this is getting a little more disturbing, a little more body horror. Yeah, pretty disturbing. Growing out of the empty shell of a body is a huge tree which has the chairman's face. I don't think this is just uh, associative imagery popping into the dream. This seems a little too on the nose. Yeah. Paprika tells Tarotaro to use the failsafe to wake Chiba up, and they go to confront the chairman, who seems to be merging dream worlds into his own delusional dream world. 
This seems like he might be the bad guy. The chairman stands to confront Chiba, and his legs are wriggling roots. Okay, he's definitely the bad guy. <laughs> he calls himself the Guardian of Dreams, as Chiba is suddenly Paprika again, and instead of standing next to Toratora, she is standing next to Osane. Wait, Shima, you were Mario the whole time? They're still dreaming, apparently, because the chairman basically tricked her. She escapes and has an amazing dream-morphing chase sequence, even using random dream logic to appear to like, see her past self at the beginning of all of this and warn her that there's danger. Hey, don't go exploring here. This, this is all going to turn out poorly. So uh, go and not end up in the terrible position I'm in now. Uh, she is eventually overwhelmed by Osane, who can apparently turn into a giant swarm of butterflies. Yeah, the, the, the swarm of butterflies like come in and like, you know, it's like fly around her when she's on the cloud. And then when the, then the swarm is gone, just like her clothes are left, like she's been eaten alive. Paprika awakens in a butterfly display room with butterflies pinned to you know, sheets and gla under glass. She is also similarly pinned to a table. Hmm, this seems like a bad place. Asana tells her that he was chosen to guard dreams from those like her who he would abuse and controlled them, but she calls him a just a jealous man who's being controlled by the chairman. Which I, th I think I'm with Paprika here. Yeah. <laughs> He doesn't seem to like this, though. Meanwhile, Konaka is back in the bar waiting for Paprika to come. Uh, but she's not there. So the bartenders begin to psychoanalyze him instead. Who are these guys? They help him remember that he actually used to make movies. Quite apart from oh, hating yeah. them. He even made an amateur film with his high school friend, which was a cop chase movie about people who grew up together. When they were 17. He doesn't feel like he had the determination to make movies professionally. His friend got into film school but got sick and died before he could attend. The movie that they made together was never actually finished. Has some weird parallels to real life here. It actually does in a very sad way. Yeah. yeah. His old friend yells at him from the corner. What about the rest of it? And runs out of the bar. Hanukkah follows him to a movie theater where... Paprika's on the screen, pinned to a table. Oh no! Osane reveals his obsession with Chiba, because he's apparently in love with her and is super jealous of her and Tokita getting along so well. Mm -hmm. He even puts his hand through Paprika physically and rips her in half, revealing that she's basically sort of a suit of clothes covering up Chiba inside. A, a persona that she's put over herself in order to be in this world. As he reaches down for her, his hand turns into roots and begins choking her as the chairman starts to take over his body and is demanding to kill Chiba for defying him. This chairman guy, he's kind of a jerk, isn't mm -hmm. he? Asane fights him because he's in love with Chiba and doesn't want to hurt her, and the chairman is just horribly upset that he's giving up everything that they've worked for for a woman that he's obsessed with so it's one of those creepy love affair thing going on versus murderous intent where, where the two different types of evil are facing off against each other during the fight uh kanaka runs through the movie screen and bursts through the wall into the room where they are just in time to knock chiba away from the struggling osane chairman hybrid being. Yeah, the weird body horror, the two heads, the plant things going on. Tara Tara tells 
Kanekoa to run back to his own dream because he sees him in Chiba's dream. It's like, what are you doing here? <laughs> All the dream worlds are colliding. So I'm, ju I'm just being a, a talking face on a billboard here. Don't mind me. They are pursued by Osane, but because Kanekoa now understands what's going on and is in his own dream, he has control now. A little more powerful, a little more influential. They go through every single iteration of his old dream, but this time he's fighting Osane the entire time, and he wins until they wind up running down the same hallway. Osane goes through the door, but this time Kanakoa shoots him, ending his chase movie. And thus the movie was completed. He strikes a hero pose in front of the sunset and kisses Chiba, who immediately wakes up and slaps Tortoro. Well, I guess that's appropriate. <laughs> Wrong person, wrong target, but yeah, appropriate. <laughs> they sit in the lab pondering whether they're actually awake this time or not. But Good Osane question. stumbles in, transparent but shot. Hmm. Um. Yeah, there's blood here as well. Uh, but then he fades away. Back at the chairman's home, Osane falls down bleeding and begins to sink through a hole that opens up in the carpet as the chairman crawls after him, yelling that he needs his body to become complete. Wait, they're going to be more fused together, but now that Osani is apparently dying, hmm, what does this mean? Chiba and Toratoro head to get the chairman and end it all, because they, you know, think they're ready to end everything. They know who the mastermind is, and they're in the waking world now. But then suddenly they see a four-story tall doll staring at them through the window. Oh no, it's the kimono doll again. Kanakawa thinks it's all over as well until he turns around striking a victory pose and sees a parade going by. Well then, um, I guess it's time for the climax of the movie then. He's joined by the bartenders, who are suddenly here now as well. Yeah, you... so who are you guys? <laughs> They all watch people morph into parts of the dream parade, and basically the whole world's dreaming now. Chiba and Toratoro are attacked by the giant doll. He's about to fall as Chiba is struggling to pull him up from some rubble, and he's about to slip out when Paprika suddenly appears, and they both pull him to safety. So we are getting the full duality of all things mm -hmm. here. We're, 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 the, the dream world and the real world are here at both at the same time, including all elements therein. And they question what the heck she's able to even do there, but, you know, she appropriately points out there is no time to explain what's going on because they're all about to die. Let's just run first. We'll, we'll maybe think about explaining things later. <laughs> she leaps through a television broadcast and emerges in the middle of the parade. With the, They all follow, including the doll, which is about to squish Chiba, when Tokita suddenly appears as the robot and saves her with missiles. Oh yeah, he was in the parade too. So you know, he's gonna be here, and he's you know he's he's a robot, yeah, you know, a toy robot, but he has missiles that explode, and you know he, he could take definitely take down the giant doll. Paprika tries to get Chiba to leave, but she says she has to stay and help Tokita. She tries to talk him out of you know being part of all of this and to wake up, but instead he grabs and eats her. Oh no, Chiba, no! Then he comments that his meal needs more spice, like some paprika, mm, maybe. Also, I want to not gloss over this. The best line in the movie here, where Chiba tells Paprika that she needs to listen to her because she's part of her. And Paprika turns around and goes, what makes you think you're not part of me? That's a good question. Paprika and Toratara emerge staring at a great big hole to another world that's described as a great big hole. 
to another world. <laughs> she decides the best idea would be to run, but they're suddenly blocked in by Tokita. Well, we're trapped between a, uh, a robot and a, a deep place, I guess. Before he can come and get them, the bartenders jump down and cover his eyes with a giant banner that gets him stuck in a wall. Yeah, he's, he's like, I cannot see, and suddenly veer off course. <laughs> then a giant ghost of Chiva appears, pulling him out, kind of shadowing their first encounter earlier, where they show her pulling him out of the elevator. But this time we get to see the aftermath of this, where they joke together and she embraces him. Seems they're fairly close, even if you know professionally they have this very, you know, you know, intended distance when they're with other people. Wind starts up, and the chairman, who's now a massive dark figure, emerges from the hole, declaring that he has power over the real world, the dream world, and death. I don't know, this seems a little greedy. Um, can we do something about this giant here? Uh, Paprika lets go and jumps backwards into the Tokita bot, where Chiba still is. With our powers combined, we are uh, some dream stuff here. Yeah, from the stomach of the robot, a baby emerges and begins to suck in the wind, growing as she does so. Can you eat the wind? The chairman tries to grab her, but she starts to inhale him too. Baby hungry! The more she eats of the chairman, the faster she grows, eventually just becoming a giant version of Chiba and clearing the darkness out of the air before also fading away as long as with everything else of the dream world. Yeah, the, uh, the, the weird, crazy uh, hole in the world sort of you know, morphs back and uh, you know, the, the parade kind of goes away and people return to normal and you know, the, the Tokita robot fades away. And everything seems to be back to normal, except all the damage in the ruined city. Oh, no. Yeah, all the damage is still there. Just all the dream stuff is gone. Yes. <laughs> Dokita wakes up to see Chiba waiting for him. Konakoa sees a vision of his old friend who tells him that he doesn't need to feel guilty about not finishing their movie because he went on to live their movie for real. Uh, you know, an action adventures and yeah, he became a cop. So uh, Making yeah. truth from fiction. He logs into the bar. The bartenders are all beat up from fighting, but they give him a letter from Paprika telling him that Chiba and Tokita got married. Oh, that's nice. And also recommending that he go see a movie called Dream Kids. Uh, one adult, please. Which he does. That's the end. The end. The end! <laughs> And that barely scratches the surface of some of the stuff in this, because every single one of those scenes was an amazingly animated chase sequence or something else with, like, incredible dream logic and action flow. And yeah, and yeah, it's like, yeah, there's this you know, character in the background that shows up later. There's, you know, this motif or this, uh, you, know, you know, this the vision of the robot here was scrawled on the ro uh, wall or, you know, this, that, or the other thing. There's a lot of elements we just are not able to properly describe in a synopsis. I was just thinking about this, that this was a very, very difficult movie to write because it's actually somewhat short. It's only a 90-minute movie. But it's incredibly dense. Every scene is communicating three or four very, very plot-critical things at the same time. In fact, uh, I think your synopsis was longer than my uh, Snowpiercer one, and that was like a three-hour movie, so... <laughs> This is like the entire thing is so about the people and the psychology of the people who are having the dreams. We only really ever see like two dreams in the entire movie because it's just too complicated. 
Yeah, you know, uh, the, the detective dream and the, uh, the parade dream and variations thereof. Yeah, I found a quote from, uh, from Satoshi Kon in an interview where he said, when you, when you like hear someone describe a dream to you, you can't know anything about the dream unless you know a lot about the person. Mm-hmm. Because you need to know the person's like childhood and their way that they interact with people and a lot about them to be able to understand what any part of the dream is. Yeah, how they perceive the world, how they interpret things, how they uh, you know, are, are prone to describing something that you might describe completely differently. And this isn't really like, you know, this isn't really part of the like philosophy or anything of the movie, but I do want to point out that I think this movie probably more than any other movie I've ever seen that includes dreams or dream logic, like understands what dream logic is. Yes. Because <laughs> everything in the dreams flows. Every part of the dream makes sense with what happens immediately before and immediately after, but not necessarily what happened before that. Which is how dreams work. Every time you have something in a dream, like I go through a doorway and all of a sudden I'm in a place that like, doesn't make any sense to be on the other side of this doorway, but you still had a transition between one place and another, so that makes sense. Yeah, so I transition through a gateway that leads from one place to another, and the fact that these two places cannot possibly be next to each other at all, that's not important. Yeah, which is how this functions. Where in, in a lot of movies that deal with dream stuff, like, um, Oh, I forget what that one's called. There was a movie someone showed me a while ago called like The Cage or something similar that was supposed to be them exploring the dreams of a psychopath. Oh yeah, um, yeah. With uh, the, I remember that with the yeah the the, the serial killer they're trying to get to the lady and she's trapped in a a uh, like a a, a a basement in that's going to fill with water sort of situation. And that entire thing, I understand where their influences are coming from, but they basically just drop you into the middle of a surrealist painting. Which so it, you know, I get because surrealism as an art form is very dream inspired and it's meant to evoke the feeling of dreams. So it's meant to evoke the feeling of dreams. You can't pop someone in the middle of a Dali painting and call it a dream. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's 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 once again that you know second level interpretation of something that you know unless you are fully integrated in how the original you know you know conceiver of the dream works. You know, you're going to just have a pale imitation. And so it's like, well, we're going to still do our best and sort of create this this way of looking, and, you know, this, this, this sort of art, this, this interpretation of vision that at least implies the, 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 the feeling of the dream, even if we're not getting it 100% correct. Yeah, which is an interesting parallel because some of the earliest uh, art movies, in fact, were very surrealist and were a lot about dreams. Like anyone who's taken any kind of film class has seen the like French ones with the you know wall the ants crawling out of the hand and the eyeball being sliced and those things. Mm -hmm. But this movie, like it actually gets across the idea that you are like watching someone's dream, not the feeling of having a dream like the surrealists were going for. It's a little bit more, I guess, uh, outside perspective, which I guess is quite appropriate for the you know, how they describe the tech that. You are sharing and viewing the dream of the other person. It also makes Paprika herself such a very interesting hero to have in this because she's basically a dream superhero because she's the one who understands how dreams work enough to be able to just do whatever. Yeah, and it's established early that uh, Chiba is like a trained psychologist here. 
And this is sort of her her skill in that that is sort of now made manifest in the dream world that is all sort of contained within this this uh, this avatar. Uh, this or you know, would it be an ideal? Well, kind of because the the whole relationship between Chiva and Paprika is very very interesting because they make a very very clear enforced separation between the two of them right up until the climax of the film. Yeah, so you know, there's definitely a hard line that is separating these two. They have very different personalities, uh, different ways of behaving, different way, the way they look. They're, yeah, so they are, they seem as very much different people, but they're still linked. Yeah, there's even one point where uh, someone tells Chiva that it was good she was able to help, and she goes, "No, Paprika did that." Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, it's a total, yeah, it's, I don't want to say it's like multiple personalities, but it's it's sort of what's being implied there in the shorthand. Well, not exactly that. We've talked a lot before about the whole kind of multiplicity idea. And they even outright say it at the end, like, you're a part of me or you're a part of me. They're like, they're separate people that kind of share the same mental space and are very good at different things. And the entire kind of climax of the movie is is Chiba becoming more accepting of Paprika and them kind of merging back together and accepting each other and being able to use that strength to take on the person who's trying to just control everything. Same thing with what they do with Kanakawa. He doesn't have the, you know, he doesn't have the altar, but he, through gaining a deeper understanding of himself and reconnecting, well, he does kind of have an altar because they keep calling uh, his friend his other me near the end. He refers to him as the other me, and that is why in his dream, he keeps seeing himself attacking himself. Yeah, it's someone that, you know, he's viewed as always being so much better, so much greater than himself, you know, his old friend. But he also sees them as, you know, that friend as a counterpart. And because his friend no longer exists, you know, it's, it's, he sort of internalized that, you know, they were both one and the same, even though he still looked up to this other person. So in both of these cases, you have people who are trying to hide or not engage with other parts of themselves that are manifesting themselves in the dream reality, that then by coming to terms with having this other part of yourself and being able to actually accept and cooperate with it, you are able to have so much more power there than the other people who are trying to just control things. Yeah, I guess it's a great con- uh, contrast with the chairman and his uh, interactions with Osani. Yeah, as the chairman like, is trying to control dreams and reality and thinks that he can't be complete without this other person. Yeah, so I need you, and when you are basically taken out of the picture, I'm going to sort of now, you know, infest you, and now I'm going to gain all this, this you know, my, a new body and become super powerful and all that stuff. And, but it's only when he's taking full control of, of both of them that he's able to sort of pull this 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 dark... Uh, you know, aspect together and beca- you know, come to his full power, but his full power is unable to, you know, you know, overcome the more harmonious unification of uh, Chiba and Paprika uh, at the end. They even kind of mention Chiba and Paprika as a sort of counterbalance to the chairman 
Because right at the mm-hmm. end, Paprika has this whole thing of like, there's dreams and reality and life and death and man and woman. And then she jumps off and becomes the super baby. It's also, you know, you know, uh, young and old. Yeah, she, mm-hmm. you know, the baby's young and the, you know, the chairman's all, you know, very old guy. And they even go so far in the thing, like it's, it's all implied through the, through the character interaction. Like Chiba is having feelings for Tokita, but they aren't very, being expressed yeah. until the end when they, you know, she finally accepts it and gets married. That's like part of her entire arc is not ignoring her feelings and what is kind of implied to be her more childlike, you know, side that can enjoy things. Indeed, you know, uh, finding that harmony allows her to no longer just be the serious business is always sort of a professional, but can allow herself to let her feelings for Tokita be finally expressed in the real world to finally bring them together. They even have some things that um, I had to have this explained to me, but throughout the movie, uh, Tokita refers to Chiva as Achan, which is a incredibly familiar. familiar way of referring to someone. It's um, yes. <laughs> as I was explained to me, it's like a, it's kind of an honorific that you would use with children. You know, so someone that is either a, a child or that you are very, very close to. Yeah. And she is constantly bothered by this, which both shows him as a immature character who doesn't understand why he's bothering people, which they set him up as throughout the movie but also her uncomfortableness with expressing that kind of closeness and imp- intimacy with him. Yeah, well, it, you know, it's, it's you know by the end it's sort of like oh maybe he he is a little bit more in tune with you know his emotions and expressing them than she is, and so this sort of you know being angry at him over that stuff is kind of her, her being kind of a jerk, honestly. <laughs> but uh, it, it's it's still sort of you know it, it's. She has to overcome that, that those, those blockages in order to sort of accept that interaction, that, that whole relationship as it is. He's already there. There's a very good thing that they do with the... Uh, I hesitate to call them the villain characters because this movie's like overcomplicates everything. They don't really... It's not like traditional Disney villains, which is what you kind of get in your mind when you say a villain character. They... Um, they keep going on and on about protecting and controlling. Like, they're the guardians of dreams, and you shouldn't control dreams. And that's the way that they see themselves interacting with all of this. But uh, Chiba and Tokita both go out of their way to say that their only goal, their entire stated goal throughout the entirety of this and the entire development of this form of therapy is to help people. Yeah, they, they're looking to heal, not harm, not control, not force. And that is like that is their entire thing through all of this. They get thrown into this other situation by the chairman trying to take over things and they have to fix what he's doing. But their only stated goal through the entire movie is just helping people. In some ways, the chairman's like, you know, expressing this sentiment that dreams should not be controlled. But then he's going out of his way to control people's dreams. Well, I think that is something that happens a lot because they... They talk about it as like, I am, act, I am protecting this thing that I see as important. And my version of protecting something is to control it completely. So that whole wildness, that wild west of dreams is, um, is now a little bit more reduced because it's now being bottled up. Everything's being thrown into the parade and it's going to be nothing else from now on. So I think that we'd be kind of remiss talking about a movie that is 
all about dream psychology without talking about dream psychology. Dun, dun, dun. So where should, should we where should we start there? Uh, ancient civilizations or a little more modern? Well, we can start with ancient civilizations if you want to. I didn't have a whole lot there other than, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, dreams are, are pretty weird. And this might mean something it might be connections to, uh, the, you know, the, the afterlife or, you know, prophetic visions or the gods and things like that. So you know, various different uh, sort of ideas of what they might mean. And well, like you've, that. yeah, throughout all of recorded history, you've had ideas of dream interpretation or dream worlds. Um, like dreams are just another plane and realm like you kind of even have the uh native australian aboriginal idea of like the dream world is just that other place where stories happen which is no more real or unreal than the world we're in now just is another one yeah it's something that i guess i get personally i can very appreciate as as a concept because uh for a large section of my life i have had a setting in my dreams that isn't always used but when it is i can always recognize it as a consistent world that is very reflective of our real world but has these sort of specific differences that are you know, once again are always consistent from dream to dream uh like this building will be have different architecture or you know this location will be moved over here or this will have a different look to it or there's a hill there as opposed to a valley or something like that and it's you know, just that having that constant going back to the same mental space for myself, you know, it's it's very, you know, it, it, you know if I, you know, was only just myself thinking about this without any sort of ex- external uh, input, that would very imply, very uh, clearly imply to me that there was this actual other place there, since it's, once again, always the same when I go back. Yeah, there are a lot of interesting consistencies when you dream, like you'll dream of the same thing over and over, which mm-hmm. actually got to some of our dream theory stuff later on. But as far as something like this movie goes with the psychology, dreams and psychology are inextricably linked. Because your head, man. The, well, the initial theories of psychology, as much flack as he gets, and some of it's well-deserved and some of it is overblown, but with as much flack as he gets now, Freud is the unquestioned father of modern Western psychology. Every single psychological and therapeutic idea we have stems in some way from Freud's psychoanalytic theories, and Freud's psychoanalytic theories were very, very linked into dream interpretation. Uh, I, I guess in some ways you can sort of see him as the, uh, the Aristotle of uh, psychology. So in Freudian thought, dreams are wish-fulfillment fantasies. You will have dreams of things that you want to do, and subconsciously, which is like, I don't know, the conscious and subconscious are weird in Freudian and Jungian psychology. Uh, We're moving away from some of that now. The analogy that I liked that I was just reading from Jung was that kind of conscious and unconscious thought are akin to visible and non-visible light. Like, you know that it's there, and it has an effect on things, but you're unable to perceive it. Unless you have a large enough radio antenna. Yeah. Antenna. <laughs> or, a, or a magic crystal. And we still use unconscious to mean this, but some modern theories have kind of moved away from that concept. Like, your unconscious mind is either completely unimportant or is something that you just kind of ignore but could be aware of. You just aren't. It's sort of the, the, the back mechanisms of the brain that have uh, connections to the, the what's 
going on the front of the, of the tar- you know, your, your, your perceptions there, but necessarily always important. But the similarity between Freud and Jung's theories on dreams are that they are basically the manifestations of your unconscious mind. A reflection of that inner workings, that back uh, machine uh, room back there. Yes, and Freud's theory was that it was all wish fulfillment, often sexual, because everything with Freud was sexual, but not necessarily so, you know, if you have a dream in which you kill your father, you want to kill your father, and then you have to figure out why you want to do that thing. I'm sensing some Oedipus here. I mean, he did that. Yeah, that's his entire yeah. entire <laughs> thing. <laughs> uh, Jung, uh, kind of, we've talked about Jung and his collective unconscious ideas before, and he had some of that. Uh, he had an interesting thought on this that... Um, as humans, there's a lot of stuff that we just full-on are incapable of understanding. He used the divine a lot as his examples for this. And to talk about things that we can't understand, we use symbols and metaphor. And since your unconscious mind is something that you fundamentally cannot understand, it throws up a bunch of spontaneous symbols and metaphors in your dreams. Some of these may be consistent in some fashion. Yes, the way that we understand these is through your shared collective unconscious ideas, which in his theories we can interpret through myth and legend because that is where those arose from. So you can take consistent archetypes like the father, the mother, the death figure, things of that nature, and throw them into your dream interpretation and be able to get an idea of what's going on in your unconscious mind. You have your dream, you... You know, then remember it. Uh, hopefully, when you wake up, uh, you sort of note which elements of these popped up, and then think about how they interacted and what that might be. Uh, you know, implying as far as your thought processes go. Mm-hmm. Though he had a pretty good quote on how loose you have to be with looking at dreams psychology, <laughs> was when you're interpreting dreams, do anything you like, only don't try to understand. You might, because if you try to, I guess, lock things down a little too solidly. You are going to be, I guess, you know, um, how, uh, what was the, the, the term here? Ah, I'm forgetting it right now. Basically, you, you pick the, the, the answer that you want to be true. There we go. <laughs> it's like his entire thing with the dream interpretation is that nothing is certain. Uncertainty is just the thing. Uh, people, people should uh, be more comfortable with uncertainty uh, to a certain degree because uh, that yeah, there's a lot of it in life. Uh, Freudian theory had a big backlash, and when we moved into some neuroscience, there emerged a somewhat popular theory of dreams that it was actually just a bunch of random, completely meaningless gibberish being thrown up by your brainstem. So you mean it makes means nothing at all? I mean, that was this theory, though... People who sustained damage to the part of the brain where this theory says dreams came from still had dreams, which threw kind of a wrench into this idea. So maybe it's a little more complicated than that. Except that there is a part of the brain in the frontal lobe, more the, you know, quote-unquote more complicated part of the brain than the brain stem, a part of the brain that is deeply linked to your ability to have self-motivation. It sounds really horrible, but people who have sustained damage to this area of their brain lose all motivation to do anything. 
they're still able to do stuff if you tell them to do stuff, but they won't do anything of their own volition. You sort of become a robot in some ways. Yeah. I need instructions. They basically stop dreaming. So it seems like if you want to get into parts of your brain doing whatever, that the part of your brain that governs your motivation also has something to do with your dreaming. So if you have a bad motivator, uh, not only are you going to get replaced by R2, but you're not going to have uh, any wild dreams. So uh, right now there's two kind of, uh, I don't know whether to call them accepted or not, but there seem to be two kind of main schools of thought when it comes to what dreams are right now. There's a kind of prevalent theory that's gaining some traction that dreams are kind of your brain's way of running through dangerous scenarios that's the uh, evolutionary uh, biology one right yeah so they did a lot of dream research and reported that something like 80 percent of people who they woke up and were having dreams uh, reported very negative dreams and that was kind of their this is kind of their idea regarding that that you will run through dangerous or unpleasant scenarios and try out different solutions to them Sort of a, you know, your brain's processing a whole bunch of data in order to prepare yourself so that you are more able to deal with these situations when you run into them in the real world, sort of on an instinctive level. Yeah. The other uh, possible one that's that's gaining a little bit of ground as well is that it's basically just a sensory deprivation hallucination. Right. It's like, okay, we have no input. Um, Let's just sort of fire things and see what happens. Yeah, I have a quote from, let's see, uh, G. William Domhoff is a professor of psychology at the University of California. So the brain's goal is always to construct a reasonable image of the world based on the material it's receiving. If you're in a situation, you're not receiving any information from the outside, it starts to invent. So it sort of generates these um, bits and pieces of imagery that then, you know, sort of coalesce into a something that your brain interprets as like a story or a movie. And we have no idea if this is why you dream or not. There's a lot of uh, speculation around this. It's very, very difficult to research because it's all based on self-reporting from dream and sleep studies. Indeed. But um, hallucinations of this type are very well documented when you're doing something like sensory deprivation. There's perhaps a, a solid link there. Yeah, and it is. they had an interesting point in the article that I was reading about this, that a couple of them were saying, we don't have a theory of how dreams work now, but you need one, because if you're going to have a theory of how your mind works, it has to explain dreams, because they're there. In a, uh, I guess, a, a comparison to physics is like, okay, we've figured out a quantum field theory that explains, you know, the electromagnetism and strong and weak nuclear forces. Does it work with gravity? Oh, no. Hmm. Whoops, we forgot something big, guys. If it doesn't work with that, then we have to uh, rethink this entire thing. And it is an interesting thing that uh, dream interpretation has fallen out of favor somewhat, especially in kind of modern psychology that wants to either go completely neuroscience or basically thinks that your unconscious thought process is unimportant and the only thing that you need to look at is how you're actual conscious thoughts or physical actions are manifesting and you should focus on altering those without having to understand why they occur, which is your kind of basic behavioral therapies. Uh, But I think that there's an interesting thing because no matter where you think dreams come from, whether you think they're aspirational or, or they're just random, random images and things, 
Uh, the interpretation seems like it could still be an important thing because apart from whether or not what you dream of has any kind of, you know, representation of what you're thinking of a lot, which I think anecdotally a lot of us would say it does because how often do you have stress dreams about something you're stressed about or dream about something you've been looking forward to or something along those lines? Even if you <laughs> completely ignore that your dreams might be representative of anything in themselves, the way that you interpret things, even say something like art or like random images, says a lot about how you think about things. So it's in some ways it is a uh, you know a, a a means to spawn the conversation about how your your, your mind is being structured right now. Yeah, because since it's something that has been spawned out of that uh, that jumble there, it is something that can be lead into something important potentially, even if it's not directly connected. Yeah, dreaming could be important, but also the way that you're interpreting things is just as important. Yeah, it's it is not just the destination, folks. It is the journey itself. Yeah, I was reading this very interesting. Uh, I wish I had it in front of me because I can't remember who said this. Well, they were talking about meditation as something that you like just do. But I think that all of these things are basically that the journey is the important part. So they said, if, if the goal of a song was to get to the end, then the best musician would be whoever could play the notes the fastest. But then no one would enjoy the music. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, uh, I, I guess the, I guess as far as the, 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 the importance of dream interpretation, I generally lean towards uh, that it is, you know, exactly the, it is very important to to use as a tool in order to get yourself thinking about things. Uh, and that, you know, there is the underlying mechanical stuff that's going on that is important as far as understanding your total, total, uh, your total psychology and how the brain works and all that. But as far as dealing with the whatever issues you're trying to tackle in the here and now, that sort of more top level stuff is perfectly okay. You don't need to go quite so deep into the why of it all. As yeah, why why do we dream and things like that? I mean, right now we just don't. I don't know if we. I don't know if why we dream is ever going to be something that we can figure out. I don't one hundred percent agree with this, but uh, Jung had a had a very strict idea in there that the um, the conscious can't understand the consciousness. I could see that. I don't know if I fully agree with, but it's basically this thing of like, you can't understand how you work when you're the one doing the thinking about it. I guess that's sort of the idea that you, you have any sort of, uh, you know, system in place that in that analyzes systems is going to be by necessity more complicated than the, you know, than, you know, than its ability to analyze a system. Kind of ignores things like you understanding, you know, parts of the system and how things could, you know, ex, uh, you know, ex, emerge in aggregate and things like that, emergent phenomenon, uh, which is kind of what the consciousness is. So if you can learn how the various physical mechanisms work, how the emergent phenomenon sort of comes out of all of that and the whole sort of process, you might not know the nitty gritty of all the little details of each individual person's brain, but you can still get a very good idea of what's going on. So, 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 so don't stop trying, guys. <laughs> I do think there's something interesting in the, um, especially in the Jungian stuff, because he wrote a lot about group things. But um, Satoshi Kon had some 
ideas about ev- like especially things like movies this movie is very much about movies because they mention a lot of movie things and they have kind of movies as like our shared dream space yeah it even references those other movies <laughs> and this idea that you are simultaneously experiencing reality both as an individual but also as a group and society because everyone in this winds up in the kind of shared dream thing at the end well there's so many things like even if you just look at something like a movie you understand it through your own personal history in a way very distinct from anyone else who's going to be viewing it because they don't have the same exact personal history as you but then you also understand it through your shared cultural history because there's pl- there's some stuff in this movie like how i was mentioning the achan thing that i didn't know what meant because i did not grow up in japanese culture but that would be a very very obvious thing for anyone who did i, I guess in some ways it is like you know calling someone you know you know you know like hey babe um and in a very familiar sort of tone as opposed to just someone i met on the street uh it's you know it can be a very you know, personal thing, but someone who's not, not familiar with English is like, well, well why'd you call them a, a, a child there? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, so everyone, everyone in that shared societal space has the same understanding of what's going on. Anyone outside of it doesn't. So you're understanding this very subjective thing kind of culturally at the same time as you're understanding it individually. So uh, I guess, you know, it, you know, the, the, the parade, I guess, is in the movie very much a, a menagerie of all of these sort of symbols, these ideas, all sort of being thrust into this same centralized thing. I guess that is maybe sort of implying that's how it's able to have such power over multiple people so easily, that it has something for everybody already in there. Well, in one of the interviews I was reading, he very specifically says that because you can't understand the person when you're dealing with something like a movie. The dream had to be entirely symbols. Mm-hmm. So it's like money cats and refrigerators and trash and uh, ceremonial arches and just like, you'd recognize most of the things in it. The Statue of Liberty is in there somewhere too. <laughs> Knights and samurai and you know, you know these iconic characters and Buddha and uh, you know, Jesus and you know all, all these things that are you know, well-known figures and ideas in, in society, which is incredibly union when you're looking at dream stuff. So in, in some ways, this dream has been crafted specifically to be the perfect malware to to prey on these this you know, very uh, you know these these archetypes of very at our core. It's exploding our weakness, Gavin. <laughs> Well, not mine, because I don't know much, enough about a lot of the Japanese symbology. Oh, no, I, I'm screwed, though. <laughs> I know slightly more. <laughs> well, like, there's there's stuff to talk about in the dream space of things, but, like, we don't know what dreams are. There's some research being done, but it's very difficult to do. But I think as far as the messages of the movie goes, I've never seen another movie that basically said there is so much power in being able to understand yourself. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that understanding yourself can lead to a lot of wonderful changes, you know, if you can sort of, you know, come to that understanding and see, figure out how you are working and why you're behaving a certain way. And it can can change your life. It can uh, help you get up, you know, pass some anxiety. It can help you, uh, you know, uh, get married and things like that. And 
you know, come to terms with yourself and feel more, you know, feel better about yourself. Um, you know, is it a, you know, a, a end all uh, cure, but it is going to definitely uh, be a, it's a good message to say that, you know, if you can do this, it can be very helpful. I was watching a, um, I was watching an interview with Jung a little while ago to prep, prep for this. And he had a kind of a thing of there's some neuroses, which was the common term for any psychological thing back then, but there's some neuroses that are like so horrible to people that they want to ignore them. And if you ignore a part of yourself like that, it's kind of like someone who is trying to do things without being able to know what one of their hands is doing. And someone in that situation is going to run into a lot of problems. I was trying to chop these vegetables, but uh, this other hand came up and uh, grabbed the knife. Um, <laughs> I, I hope whoever's controlling that knows what they're doing. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, paprika and that that other sort of persona thing going on there. Um, you know, we already talked a little bit about that, but uh, I wanted to sort of uh, bring it around to something, uh, you know, some some ideas that a uh, a friend of mine has actually, uh, uh, you know, been sort of working on about uh, sort of personas and various variations thereof uh, that uh, people sort of generate in order to have something, an identity that isn't necessarily the one that their standard everyday uh, experience is, is showing the world. Mm. Uh, and he sort of breaks them up into three general uh, you know, uh, uh, categories. Uh, the ideal, which is like the physical and psychological traits that you find most attractive. So it's like the, the better version of yourself. Uh, then there's the paradigm, which is more of an abstract idea uh, that is being sort of embodied by this persona here. And the third one is the, av uh, the avatar, which is actually just very close to your you know, who you are right now, but with some some small changes to sort of fit in with the uh, the general uh, gist of the space you're existing in. Um, and so, in the, in this movie, uh, Paprika is is I guess more the the ideal of uh, you know uh, sort of mode of this here because she is someone who has these uh, traits that Chiba is not you know yet willing to sort of express and this, this more childlike nature this more loving nature this more uh, active and eager and adventurous side of herself uh, these are things that she you know definitely values uh, and finds attractive but is not able to put them out into her, her uh, you know, her general waking world, uh, except in very small doses. Uh, and so this having, you know, this sort of separation there, uh, you know, it's definitely sort of very, very clearly falling into that sort of categorization he worked on. I think it's kind of an interesting one if you look at that, because it's difficult to tell whether or not Chiba does value the the things that Paprika represents, because she's very dismissive of her throughout the entire movie until the end when they actually understand each other better, which is what lets them actually do more things and finally defeat the, you know, evil. Because there are several times where, like, in the be near the beginning of the movie, she ignores Paprika a couple of times, which like, puts her life directly in danger. Like, she's so yes. dismissive of this part of herself that she's willing to put herself at risk rather than listen to it. Well, being dismissive of that part of yourself doesn't mean you don't find those elements attractive as well. You know, in fact, you know, there could be some uh, guilt about having that attraction and that put, you know, encourages you to sort of push that further away. And um, like that, having guilt around the attraction to childlike things is kind of embodied by her relationship with Tokita. 
It's like, yeah, this is very, you know, sort of, a, you know, a, a, you know, he's described directly as very childlike in a lot of ways. And he is, you know, he is a genius and is, you know, is very much in his headspace a lot uh, and is not super concerned with the stuff that everybody else is concerned with beyond very, you know, specific things. And it is, and she, she likes that about him, but she's very also trying not to let that manifest in the real world for most of the movie. I also, it kind of, your description kind of reminded me of this thing that they have in communication theory, which is, um, I forget exactly what it's called, but that your perception of yourself and your perception and the perception of yourself that others have can be kind of split up into this four quadrant idea. So you have the things that you know about yourself that no one else knows. And you have the things that you know about yourself that other people also know. And then you have the things that you know, the things that other people know about you that you don't know. I'm forgetting what the fourth one is. It all fits in very well. <laughs> the things that nobody knows about. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. I think it's the things that uh, neither you nor anyone else knows about yourself that possibly will change into one of the other categories later. <laughs> yeah, the undiscovered country of the self. I had to do a Star Trek reference. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff being written about with the masks idea, which is kind of similar to the, you know, depending on what situation you're in, you're going to act differently. People have called this kind of code switching before. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty easy to understand, at least in the way I think about the things with the multiplicity idea, because you just have different parts of yourself and they lend themselves to different situations. But depending on how much you like them or don't like them or are willing to engage with them, some of them are you know, farther away or less able to be a part of you in everyday life and will have to exert a higher level of control later if they feel like it's really important. Which in some ways is what you hit with Paprika because uh, Chiba's not very aware of her or maybe not aware she's not very accepting of paprika even to the end she's trying to control her which means in dangerous situations she basically has to take over you know paprika's like no I, we really need to do this thing now so i, I guess you know I, I wanted to sort of uh i guess highlight that there is i guess interest in people who sort of uh generate this alternative uh, persona sort of intentionally in order to sort of group various aspects of themselves else together. And it can sort of create this weird dynamic uh, that is you know, not a, you know, a split personality or something like that, but is a very much a, a, a conscious effort to quarantine these qualities between uh, different parts of yourself. And the purpose of those can be, you know, can, can vary a great deal. Um, so I just find that really interesting, honestly. Well, I think that's an interesting point because if you, if you start talking about different personas, that kind of leads one to wonder whether it implies that there's some you that is more real than one of the personas is. Because that's the way a lot of people talk about things, especially mm-hmm. uh, when you talk about like making friends or relationships or things. That kind of the goal should be to make the real you be the person that you are most of the time. But Yes. What in the world is the real you? Because everyone switches up how they act in different situations. It's very natural. It's something that you just do. It's, in fact, necessary. Mm-hmm. So is the you that you are when you're alone 
the real you because you do a lot of things when you're alone that you certainly shouldn't do when you're around other people. So the idea that there's a real you that you should be shooting for is actually kind of ridiculous if you put any particular thought behind it. Being able to like recognize what you're doing in different situations can be pretty helpful. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I'd argue that the movie is actually very good on this because it sort of realizes, you know, you know, you know it's like, no, both of these, you know, personas are necessary for the whole. Uh, you know, just having one is leaves an incomplete person. Yeah, you know, they are both the real Chiba slash Paprika. And they even say at the end, they're both as valid. Like, are you a part of me yeah. or am I a part of you? Uh, both. <laughs> so yeah. So I guess uh, you know, you know. So don't don't be afraid of uh, sort of understanding these different personas you may have or generate, or you know, even you know, you know, uh, try to cultivate in an intentional fashion. Um, you, know, you might might find some interesting stuff about yourself. I certainly have. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think the in, the like basic message that I was getting from the movie is try to understand yourself, be accepting of yourself. And don't think you have control over things. You know, illusions of control is fine, but you know, trying to force it can run into problems. That was part of the exchange with Paprika at the end. Like, why do you think you have control of yourself? <laughs> um, good question. Hmm. <laughs> I, I, I guess another reason I sort of uh, set up uh, Paprika as as uh, in the, uh, those three categories as an ideal is that of Chiba and Paprika. Paprika seems to be the one who's much more in tune with the understanding of the psychology. Uh, so, you know, Chima might have the official degree, but Paprika is the one who's more actively sort of practicing it. Well, they don't give you enough of Paprika to, like, be sure of what her entire personality is like. But it sure. is somewhat implied that she is immature and impulsive which mm-hmm. can be good things or bad things. So I don't think that you can necessarily hold her up as like, this is the way that Chiva should or wants to be. Because there's definite things that she, the way that she acts is implied to be negative in some ways. She does wind up in danger. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that this is how, you know, the, the movie wants her, her to be, but, you know, having some of these qualities or having at least more of them is an ideal that the character Chiva uh, potentially has. Uh, but you know, to go all in is also dangerous at the same time. And the movie is very much about balance because it specifically yes. says so at the end. It's also very so, good uh, at highlighting seek balance, folks. the idea that you aren't supposed to understand necessarily. So they have mm-hmm. the whole the ent- the end sequence, like uh, Kanaka comes up and sees the giant hole in reality and goes, "What is that?" And the bartenders go, "It's a hole." <laughs> like ah, <laughs> it is what it is <laughs> we're not going to explain this to you audience <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah we don't have to fill in all the blanks here use your imagination or you know we'll, we'll, we'll sort of imply what it is and if you don't get it then oh well <laughs> so yeah so, so so don't so so don't worry um seek some balance and uh get to know yourself because uh you're the most important person to yourself Hi. So who are you, Gepwin? <laughs> yeah, even Gepwin. We don't use real names on this, which is weird on the internet nowadays. It was just a habit I got into, and it's how I've branded everything else. Same here. <laughs> now, by the way, uh, uh, everyone, uh, uh, Gepwin's real name is Archibald Incognito, <laughs> just so you know. I wanted to name drop uh, the, 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 the guy I know, uh, Jonathan Barry Duncan. Yeah, he's talked about a lot of this stuff for a while. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> 
Well, in the interest of not having this be a two-hour-long episode, it's probably time for the galaxy's favorite game show! Hey everybody, welcome back to the game show portion of the show, where we have a, b- a bunch of animated uh, contestants today, and they, they've been racking up a huge amount of points. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quite impressive here that we have to give out, uh, I believe, uh, five winners today. Wow. Hmm. So our first prize is the Babel Network prize, which is going to basically everyone in the movie by the end for kind of having a shared dream experience. What do they win, Gep? Everyone in this movie wins the collected works of Carl Jung for dream interpretation so that they can come to some sort of terms with what's going on here. Yeah, I think that might be necessary because they're going to be a little confused for the next few weeks, I think, at the very least. Our second award is the Hard Drive Brain Award, which goes to Himuru because apparently his mind gone erased, maybe? Because he's just kind of a shell now and uh, that's kind of, kind of spooky. What, what does he win? Since we don't get to see what he winds up doing at the end, or if he's alive, even, Hamaru gets to go retire to a nice government pension place where he can just make dolls forever. Oh, that's not so bad. Um, for a moment, I thought you were going to make a Ghost of the Shell reference, but, you know, like a solid state aside. Anyway, <laughs> our third one is the Mind Over Mind Award, which goes to the sh- uh, chairman Sh Shijiro Inui and Dr. Morio Asane, uh, for using their powers over to dreams to uh, influence people and infect people with a waking nightmare and not make many friends along the way. What do they win, Gepwin? The chairman and Osani get... The, they, they need some therapy. They should have been using these things instead of trying to take over them. They both would have been much better off. Hmm, I have to agree. So uh, get, you, get ye into a, a therapy machine, guys. Oh, I guess Mario's probably dead at the end. But anyway... <laughs> Uh, the uh, the fourth award is the Metaphysical Combat Award. Um, it's like Mortal Kombat, but different. <laughs> uh, which goes to Paprika for uh, using ideas and dream logic to win the day in the end. What does she win, Gepwin? Paprika wins the Inception Award for like having done that idea better sooner. And this is what that movie should have been. Because this is how you actually fight in dreams. You don't just imagine guns. Yes. <laughs> it's like, well, we have the full tapestry of existence we can manipulate here, so why not we use that as opposed to just dreaming up a gun we kill people with? Hmm. So yeah, paprika, you get a cool, you get a big bomb. <laughs> All right, our final award is this Badass Director Award, which goes to uh, Toshima uh, Konakawa uh, and, of course, director Satoshi Kon himself, for kind of obvious reasons. They're both kind of badasses and pretty damn good directors. Uh, what do they win, Gepwin? They should have been able to lock in Best Foreign Language Movie at the Oscars, and I don't even think this movie was nominated, which is insane. I shake my fist at the Oscar uh, nomination board. I mean, in 2006, we still cared about this. Ugh. Oscars are so disappointing. Anyway, <laughs> uh, that's... That's all the awards we got here. Take it away, Gapwood. Thanks for all our contestants. I hope you all enjoyed, and thank you for joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! (laughs) 
And since I mentioned it, the um, Inception stated this movie as an influence, mm-hmm. stole scenes directly from it, and still managed to do it very, very, very badly. Whoops. <laughs> Yeah, I, I generally liked uh, Inception, but I definitely liked Paprika a whole lot better because <laughs> uh, uh, it's it's much more dreamlike. And I guess with the you know Inception being live action as opposed to animated, you have limitations uh, to have to worry about because you have to have people actually like being actors, I guess. Uh, so you have to sort of limit the special effects to a certain degree, but still, could do yeah. a lot more with that. I mean, he even said like cons. Uh, said that he didn't direct live action because it was too slow. Yep. <laughs> too too many things can get in the way, and, uh, you know, there's, there's not enough ability to break with the uh, reality. I, I remember uh, reading uh, uh, J. Michael Straczynski's uh, uh, book on uh, script writing, uh, you know, thousands of years ago, of course, uh, and he, he was talking about in the intro to the writing for animation is that you you know it you know the the important thing to remember is that animating you know a an exploding cupcake exploding car an exploding planet uh, are all equally easy in animation so let your mind go wild <laughs> yeah I don't think that this is a concept that could be done in live action it would really yeah they were working on a live action version at one point which I think is not happening. Good. <laughs> I, I would be disappointed by a live action vi- uh, version just yeah, flat I don't, out. Yeah. I don't understand. Like, this movie is already basically as good as it could ever possibly be. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, uh, 5,000 stars for this one and uh, A plus ranking. So, what now, Gepwin? Are we going to wake up? All right. Next week, next week, we're going back. Back to the Star Treks. Original series season three episode ten. Um, I don't wanna, but (laughs) what's this one? This one is Plato's stepchildren. I remember this one having a a reputation. It is the it is it is one of the more influential, like historically important episodes of TV. It's weird that it is. There's some stuff with psychics and uh, Greeks and other things. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't look good. I don't know what to make of it. Um, Most people that I saw talking about this said it's about uh, 30 minutes of the crew awkwardly dancing around for no particular reason. Well, that should make the synopsis short then. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Also, the aliens in this are apparently called platonians all right do they have platonic relations with people they should yeah it's like plato but with nonians stuck on the end (laughs) so you named your species after this one guy from earth yep yeah why maybe plato (laughs) maybe plato was one of them i don't know (laughs) anyway it doesn't look great and i'm not looking forward to it how many how much of this freaking series do we have left after this oh another 14 episodes we're almost there, Gapwin. We'll have one more movie episode before the end of this. Hmm, I should start thinking about my choice then. Uh. Do you want a good oh. movie or a terrible movie? <laughs> I guess it depends where we wind up by the time we get to this thing. <laughs> All right. 
Okay, I hope that everyone had a good time. If you haven't seen Papriki yet, I'm sorry about all the spoilers, but you should still go watch it because the animation is awesome. If you don't have access to it, because it can be a little bit hard to find, even though it's on Amazon, like it's not a lot of other places. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as I can tell, the dubbed version is nowhere. Yeah. So uh, sub is most likely to be what you run into and uh, you know, just get used to it if that's not your thing. Yeah, it's fine. If you can't see it, look up the original soundtrack. So, go and experience. Or at the very, very least, look up the intro on YouTube because it's there. Mm-hmm. Don't watch the trailer. Trailer is bad. <laughs> and next week, we'll figure out what is going on with the ancient Greeks in space again on Watches of Tomorrow. <laughs> Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, brain pain again. Oh no! You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come if you enjoy our podcast make sure to subscribe for more and where possible make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review you may find gepwin on youtube.com slash gepwin and twitter at gepwin you may find me dr isix on youtube.com slash dr isix and twitter at isixlp Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>